Hello, and welcome to the One Health Conversation Series, brought to you by the African Network for Animal Welfare USA. I'm Dr. Katherine Baxter, the CEO of Animal USA. Today, we'll be discussing the important interplay between culture and conservation with two very esteemed guests, Dr. Richard Reading and Kahindi Lakahaile. If you enjoy this conversation and want to learn about or support our work, you can visit www.anousa.org. Before we begin, I just want to introduce our two guests. Kahindi Lakahaile is formerly the head of the Department of Planning and Research at Anau in Nairobi, where he spearheaded evidence-led planning for impactful animal welfare interventions. He has a wealth of knowledge and working experience gained since 1990 from employment by different wildlife, ecotourism, and environmental organizations in Africa as a full-time researcher and also at management levels. Over the past 30 years, Kahindi has published several articles in peer-reviewed journals and has used his research findings to address and influence many international policy forums. He is a longtime member of Nature Kenya, a reputable African Natural History Society, whereby he sits on the Bird Scientific Subcommittee. Kahindi is also a technical advisor to several community-based wildlife conservancies, as well as a community-based wildlife and tourism organizations in Kenya. He is an alumni of the Partnership for African Social and Governance Research and the Kenyan Institute of Management. In addition, Kahindi is an associate faculty member of Moy University School of Tourism, Hospitality, and Events Management. He's an environmental studies graduate from Technical University of Kenya and a master's of science degree holder from the University of Strathclyde in Scotland. He is currently a doctoral candidate in tourism management at Moy University. Dr. Richard Reading is an ANA USA board member and the director for research and conservation at the Butterfly Pavilion based in Denver, Colorado. He is also the executive director of the nonprofit Coalition for International Conservation. Dr. Reading holds affiliations with the University of Denver, Colorado State University, and the University of Nebraska. He received a PhD and three master's degrees from Yale University and an honorary doctorate from the National Education University in Mongolia. Rich has conducted or overseen projects in dozens of countries, working primarily on grassland and arid ecosystems on six continents, with a focus on the Great Plains of North America, the steppes and deserts of Mongolia, the savannas and deserts of Botswana, and the Altiplano of Peru. Dr. Reading has experienced studying and conserving a wide variety of wildlife from butterflies to wild camels, from frogs to hedgehogs, from snakes to wild dogs, and many more species. His work focuses on developing pragmatic, effective, and interdisciplinary approaches to the conservation of wildlife in protected areas through research, capacity development, and working with local people and governments. Dr. Reading serves as an associate editor for five scientific journals, has published over 220 scientific papers and book chapters, written dozens of popular articles, and written or edited nine books. So with that, um, let's jump into it. Welcome, Kahindi. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having us. So I think um, before we dive into the more substantive focus of today's conversation, I'd really love it if you could each share with our listeners how you got into a career promoting the welfare of animals and the environment. Rich, would you start us off? Sure, I can start off. Um, with me, it's always been there. I was born with this kind of kinship for animals, I think, because from when I can remember, I always wanted to do something with animals, and I always felt a strong bond and relationship with those animals. I know that my parents say that whenever they would take me to the library, all I do is get animal books. When they asked me where I wanted to go, it was to see animals um, out into nature. I spent a lot of my time running around in the woods, in the fields, um, looking at animals, uh, and perhaps I was, perhaps I really should have been born in a different culture because I think our culture is less akin to, to wildlife and animals than other cultures. Um, 
like in Africa and in Mongolia, places I love, uh, where the people seem to have a much stronger bond and, and relationship with animals that is in a way more positive and fulfilling, at least from my perspective, than it is uh, in, in our culture that tends to look at animals from a more kind of mastery of animals perspective than a kinship with animals perspective that I find myself drawn towards. So I can't, like a lot of people, they can pinpoint one spot or a particular point in time that they all of a sudden had this revelation that they wanted to go into animal uh, work. I don't have that. I always felt that way. And so um, maybe it's more boring, but I, I have a lot of great animal stories um, that I'd love to relate at some point, but um, love animals, uh, feel a bond with them. And um, it's always been there. It's a really interesting point how you distinguish between cultures that have a sort of mastery relationship to animals versus a kinship. And certainly, yeah, in the U.S. context, that seems to be predominant. But Gehindi, what about what about yourself? Maybe you have a different relationship there. Yeah, um, I was born a pastoralist. You know, people who predominantly spend all their time herding livestock, mainly camels and goats. Um, because I was born in the northern parts of uh, Kenya, right in uh, some of the most peculiar deserts you can imagine out there. So uh, my backyard was just full of elephants and uh, lions and uh, all the venomous snakes you can think of and all the antelopes, you know, and all the birds. You know, it, it, was, it was pretty amazing. And then um, I so happened to have a peculiarity, you know, that... Um, made my parents take me to school, you know, because kids with peculiarities were the only ones being taken to school. Otherwise, all the best kids basically just had livestock, you know, and that's the best occupation and best education upbringing for them. So when I went to school, then I really dreamed of being a priest or being a soldier. The tribe I come from is a warrior tribe. So I thought um, being a soldier was a, was a really wonderful, you know, and noble cause, you know, for me. So I single-mindedly, you know, at primary level, really wanted to be a soldier. And then um, uh, because there were very few kids and we had to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, with educated kids, most of them were actually uh, being housed in uh, missions and churches, you know, and all the religious places. Then I admired our priest and he was this guy who knew everything and uh, taught us how to uh, respect little creatures and, you know, have a lot of risk and look at the sky you know, he would tell us about the constellations. Then he would hear the owls and tell us which one that was, the night jazz, and he would whistle like one. Then he would actually tell us to watch out for the rattles. You know, it, it was, I was like, what? You know, I mean, I really didn't want it to be a priest. You know, then uh, at some point, you know, in primary school, I joined the Boy Scouts, you know, and in the Boy Scouts, it was a mixture of both of them. That is, um, you know, harmony with nature, you know, which was very spiritual, but also adventure you know, which was very, sol you know, soldier-like and warrior-like. So I kind of like, like the Boy Scouts thing. And for some reason, I just got fixated on birds. To date, I am always accused of having a feather in my brain. Any bird that calls or chirps or does anything, I know the name. You know, that one, you, you know, I, I will turn my head, you know, to any bird flying, walking, you know, gliding next to me anytime, you know, and I can tell you exactly what that was. So I got fixated to birds. So when I was in high school, uh, right towards the end of 1989, an organization called Wildlife Clubs of Kenya invited me as a student, and uh, this time as a student leader, to uh, help in facilitating a wildlife education outdoor course. 
And when I was out there, you know, they just they just do the birds and do the nature walks and tell us all about the mammals and just, you know, give us an inspiration as to how we should relate with these things. And I felt very privileged. Little did I know there was a journalist from the Washington Post, you know, um, his name was Neil Henry. And he did a story in 1989 in August on me and my passion and enthusiasm on birds and nature. And he interviewed me what I exactly wanted to be. And I said, I wanted to be a chief warden or I wanted to be a wildlife scientist, but I wanted to be a conservationist. And I've never turned my back. So to date, I'm still on it. You know, I mean, little creatures, large creatures, gliding things fascinate me. So we can talk and talk about animals, plants, creatures like insects, you know, fish, as well as amphibians anytime. In actual fact, uh, one of the um, uh, things I always discourage people from doing to me is introduce a topic on elephants. That one requires a decade to shut me up. You know, so that usually doesn't happen very often. So um, to date, for the last 38 years, I've been on wildlife, you know, and I've been on conservation all that time. So to me, it's not a profession, it's a passion. You know, and I rarely, uh, in most cases, how I get introduced to wildlife organizations or animal organizations is actually just connecting and networking with people rather than applying for jobs. So that's how I actually always end up working in an animal or animal welfare circle. Yeah, and your passion for it comes out so clearly. And it's really quite a remarkable story, Kenny. And, and Rich, I know you have an affinity for birds as well, don't you? I love birds. Well, I love everything, though. But yeah, I post birds every day, uh, almost. A picture of a bird I've, I've seen, taken a photo of. Um, but I, I, I'm like Andy. Everything from butterflies to elephants, um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the diversity of these creatures that you get to appreciate. And so I think, Kahindi, you had said, obviously, you have a connection with elephants. So were there any particular experiences with animals, elephants, or otherwise, that maybe had a lasting impact or that helped shape you as a person? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's hard to narrow it down to just one. But is there something vivid that comes to mind when I ask you that question? Uh, well, uh, just be forewarned, this can go on forever. Okay, but, well, um, maybe give us the you, version. <laughs> let me, let me, um, I can tell you, uh, Katie, elephants are real special creatures. And um, I've been curious and fascinated by them since childhood. In actual fact, I come from the Samburu culture where the elephant is considered as one of the most special natural objects out there. So in my academic studies at master's level, I uh, decided to investigate you know, what this cultural connection was. And I realized that an elephant is not an animal to my tribe. It is actually a moral being. It is a being that can actually decide what is right and what is wrong. And in actual fact, in my tribe, if you are killed accidentally by an an elephant, everybody asks what you did. They don't ask why the elephant did it. They always say, what did you actually do? And this kind of like demonstrates, you know, the connection, uh, the cultural connection between people and natural objects. And an elephant is just one example. Like for example, I'm born a twin. You know, so one of the things that happens is if a puff adder, which is the most venomous snake we have in Africa, uh, enters our house, then my mother culturally has to leave the house, you know, to the puff adder because it is a taboo for her to be in the same house with a puff adder because it is considered 
a core wife since she gave birth to twins. You know, so this kind of relationship, again, you know, you would expect everybody to kill, you know, or to really just annihilate, you know, any creature that would uh, endanger their lives. And here is a tribe that looks at that object, you know, as an object, you know, to be, to be respected, you know, and to be let go simply because it has a connection. Um, the other thing in my tribe when it comes to elephants is um, in uh, 1996, I got employed by uh, one of the most famous ecologists uh, um, on elephants in the world, and that's uh, Dr. Ian Douglas Hamilton. You know, I joined his team as an African scientist, you know, to work on elephants. And um, he, you know, from in there, I learned, you know, about individual identification, how to observe and record behavior, as well as uh, observe the relationship between, you know, different types of elephants, whether it's um, a, a female and a calf, or a female and a sister, or a bull and a brother, or something like that. And Katie, to date, when I talk to people, I still look at their behavior from the point of view of an elephant. You know, I, it, it, I had to take a very long time to stop looking at everybody's ears, because for elephants, you can actually identify them individually by just looking at the niches and notches and the tears and the, you know, the swellings on their ears in order for you to tell them differently. So when you introduced me to somebody, I actually used to look at their ears, you know, and try to more or less like memorize the pattern, you know, and before I just got the name. So that took, you know, quite a lot of time. Now, um, uh, then from the year 2002 all the way to 2008, then I worked on a program called the Monitoring the Illegal Killing of Elephants. And this is where, you know, uh, we recorded every single dead elephant, determining why it died, how it died. Uh, what its age was and what its gender was. And I can tell you, I documented 1,432 elephants, autopsied each and every one of them. And that's when I realized that although dead men can tell no tales, dead elephants tell a lot of tales, you know, because you can be able to map out and come up with a pretty good picture as to what is driving the mortality trends of elephants in different places. And that's exactly what led me to my first trouble in advocacy. You know, when I said there is a lot of dead elephants out there and the people who told me about those dead elephants were not the official records. It was the people who live with them. You know, the herdsmen out there, they knew where these elephants were, whether they were poached or natural deaths or conflict cases. They knew each and every one of them. And when I started recording those mortalities, I realized that I got over 75 percent more than what the government you know, organization was getting in charge of wildlife management and conservation. So then um, my contribution to that particular program under the CITES convention uh, called the monitor Monitoring the Illegal Killing of Elephants was another turning point for me in understanding, appreciating, and um, my passion for elephants. Wow. Yeah, Kendi, you have such a, a depth of experience, um, and I'm glad you took the time to explain that. And maybe in this conversation later, we'll get to what ended up happening as a result of you finding all of these elephants and bringing to light the actual cause. But maybe that's a conversation for another day. Um, but sure. Rich, what about yourself? I mean, I have a feeling, um, like you said, it, it's been something, that, an affinity that you've had since you were a child. But is there any kind of memory or, or vivid experience that comes to mind in terms of your relationship with animals that set you on the course that you're currently on? So many vivid experiences. Um, it's hard to pick all. one. <laughs> <laughs> one of my first ones actually was 
um, and influenced by my mom. And I went out one day as a kid. I was probably, I don't know, seven. And I went to catch 100 snakes. And I just wanted to catch 100 snakes. I don't know why. So I went out one day, and I just went on a snake hunt. And I caught 100 snakes, and I put them in a garbage can. And um, I left them there overnight. And the next day, I went out there, and they were gone. And um, I was like, wow, how did that happen? And my dad said, oh, they can squeeze themselves really thin and get out, which is not true, of course. It took me years to realize that, in fact, my parents had let them go. But it was a great lesson because it was a lesson my mom taught me that these animals didn't belong in a garbage can. They certainly didn't belong in captivity. They were wild critters. And what I learned there was that all wildlife has a meaning and a purpose and a right to live its life to its fullest. And that was at a very young age. Since then, I've had infinitely more experiences. Another one that 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 really had seared itself in my mind is one day went going for a run out on the prairie and a swift fox, which is a little fox, decided to run with me. And it ran literally two feet from my feet for about a half a mile. And a couple of times it would stop and sit down. And I would go, I'd just make a little, and it would start running again. And it just stayed with me. And it was amazing because, I don't know, it, it seemed to be one with me um, and one that I shared a, shared a passion for running with at the time. So um, those are just a couple of, of many stories. I think some of the more kind of heart-wrenching stories that have led my career to where it is is when I first got started in conservation and learning about prairie dogs and the, and the massive um, extirpation attempts to actually wipe them out and seeing this firsthand of people out poisoning prairie dogs and, and killing the, the, the species that is a ecosystem engineer, much like elephants. They create an environment that so many other species depend on for existence. And I realized at the time that, boy, we had a long way to go in our culture and our society before we could get to a place where we could be enlightened enough to do conservation that would be meaningful to all the people in our country. And we still have a long way to go because people are still poisoning prairie dogs. But it, it basically codified in my mind the need to reach out to people more than animals. So at, before then, I think probably all I wanted to do was work with animals. And after then, I started realizing that I needed to do a, a double career path, which I, I since undertook, which was to look at both the ecology of animals. So I got degrees in wildlife ecology, but then human dimensions of wildlife management. How do we work with people and try to get them to engender the kind of love and respect for animals that, that I have? And that I think is really fundamental to humanity. I think really that's what people are born with and what's kind of knocked out of us during the acculturization process. We're going to talk about a lot about culture today, but I think that process happens and people lose that, that natural affinity and that natural respect for wildlife. So I think those are just three stories that really impacted my life in, in kind of order in which they occurred and um, made me partly made me the person I am today. That's remarkable. Also, just the story of the, the fox running alongside you. That's oh, a pretty amazing. special encounter. And like you said, it's just thinking about how we can make it so that more people, especially at young ages, develop that connection and that respect and that affinity. And that exposure, because so many youth now don't even have the exposure to other animals and, and the outdoors. 
my, my version of this, which is slightly less glamorous mm-hmm. is from when I was six to when I was 18, when I left my house, I'd walk around our house every morning. We had window wells, you know, where the it's sort of underground containers where all of the creatures would fall in and get trapped and bugs and spiders. And, um, I would always, I'd, I'd walk around every morning before I went to school and I'd jump in the window wells and I'd get all the little toads that had fallen in <laughs> the night before and I'd take them out and I'd put them over by, we had a, a water. Yeah, I think that's why we had so many toads because we had some natural water on our, our, on our land. And my sisters just thought I was crazy because I, you know, it's cobwebs and spiders and there were snakes and things in there, but it was just getting them all out because I knew by the end of the day or in, in a couple days, they'd all be toast. And I'd get so concerned when we left town because I knew, you know, for two weeks, there's going to be nobody to get those, those little toads out of the window well. But yeah, that, that kind of consideration, the moral consideration for other animals, it's a very hard thing. Um, actually, Rich, I think you're right. It's something that's natural, but it's something that can seem difficult to maintain throughout life, through that acculturation process, as you said. Okay, I won't go any more into depth into that because I think we'll touch more on the cultural dimensions of conservation and animal care. But I think now would be a good time to transition into our main topic, which is what we've kind of touched on already, the interplay between culture and conservation. And we framed it that way to be able to engage with this both theoretically and empirically. So given that part of our aim in this conversation is to discuss these topics in a way that's accessible to a diverse audience, For the sake of this discussion, I'll provide a generic definition of culture, which I'm sure you both will chime in on and um, hopefully enhance as I speak. But we can think of culture as an umbrella term, which encompasses the social behavior and norms found in human societies, as well as the knowledge, beliefs, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, habits, pretty much anything you can think of of individuals within these groups. So we understand culture to be something that organizes human society and individual behaviors and beliefs. And we recognize that cultural practices and institutions vary markedly across the globe and often arise across time in response to specific human, animal, and land characteristics. So it's a mouthful, but hopefully that gives a sort of (laughs) working definition. And conservation, for the purpose of this conversation, will define as the careful preservation and protection of all aspects of the natural environment, including its resources, inhabitants, and interrelationships. So how did I do on those definitions from two experts? I think they're good. Obviously, culture is everything that defines our societies, really, mm-hmm. and um, the institutions as well as the people within those institutions. And of course, institutions both are determinant of and a and then result of our culture. So our culture influences our institutions, but our institutions also help define and indoctrinate people into our cultures. It's one thing I think a lot about is institutions and how they affect what we think about. Um, and then all the interplays of of our personal experiences, and, um, what social scientists called liked and disliked reference groups, so people we like and don't like, and what they think. Yeah, I think those are good. Those are good definitions. Gandhi, what do you think? I mean, from a completely different culture. Um, I, I think they are, they are, um, they are good generic definitions. You know, I mean, that's what I would say. But I still um, fall to uh, culture being a way of life, and then all the peculiarities and the dynamics that uh, come uh, shaped by, you know, the specific environments and circumstances, you know, uh, of an individual or a group of people, or even, you know, an organization. 
when it comes to conservation, I have a slightly different way of looking at it, you know, where I think conservation is not an art or a science, but it is basically the norms, the customs, the taboos, and the practices we engage to uh, uh, use natural resources wisely, you know, the wise use of natural resources. So protection and preservation could be methods of conservation, but they are not entirely conservation. So conservation is actually more of use rather than preservation and protection, where protection, preservation, you know, um, are basically just methods of conservation. Well, I like your definition better. And, and the emphasis on wisdom is actually quite insightful in this context. So, um, okay, with that backdrop, I'd love it if each of you could try to unpack uh, why culture matters to conservation efforts, to people who may have never really thought much about this relationship before. I'll hand it over to Rich first. <laughs> I go first. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a big thing to unpack, of course. Um, but really, culture is what we're indoctrinated into as we grow. And so we find in our society, in the United States, for example, that people start off with a natural affinity for wildlife and animals. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the years and told me how their kids really love animals. And can't I, you know, mentor them a little bit because this might be where they want to go. And eventually nine out of 10 grow out of it. And the reason they grow out of it is because of the culture that surrounds them and indoctrinates them and tells them certain things. Similarly, um, most people when they're young have an affinity for all animals, but as they grow, people acculturate them into thinking things like, oh, bugs are yucky, um, but bugs aren't yucky. And little kids pick up pill bugs and ants and beetles and play with them all the time. And as they get older, those same people will start to say, oh, gross, I don't want to hold that. I've seen it with my neighborhood kids, for example, as they grow, they've changed similarly with, with snakes and other animals. So I find that, like I said, institutions are a result of our, our culture, but they also reflect our culture and influence and indoctrinate people into the, the predominating culture. And, um, you know, people talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage that we have in the United States and in the Western, in Western Europe, and in a lot of the Western world, actually, wherein there's this kind of idea of human mastery over, over nature that comes from one particular reading or interpretation of the Bible that I don't think is, is necessarily an accurate one. Um, and I don't think it's really a useful one if we want to see the long-term health of our planet either. So I think there are other interpretations of holy books and Bibles and um, other religions that look at our relationship to nature very differently. Buddhism comes to mind and how they see a kinship to and an affinity towards nature and think of ourselves as just one more of a suite of species that are inhabiting this planet together. And a group of species with, for whom you might actually find yourself um, in the body of in the future, because if you're reincarnated as a snake or a frog or a dog, you're going to have a very different life experience than if you do as a human. I don't necessarily ascribe to any of these religious beliefs, but I think they've had a massive influence on the way we think about nature and about life on the planet. And that's just one institution. Our other institutions are formal schools, our 
major governmental institutions all have an impact on the way we think about life and the other life that lives on the planet with us. And our norms and customs suggest that it's okay um, in, in the United States and in the Western world to, for example, kill other animals because they're not human and that human life comes first and that we should have the first and foremost respect for human life. And then afterwards, we can think about other forms of life on the planet. That, I think, has been to the detriment of the planet. And it's been to the detriment of the planet in several ways, one of which is overexploitation of animals, but another which is the loss of habitats. So we can see that pastoralists are being forced off the land, for example, to talk about to, to talk to communities upstream, and they're being forced off the land by agriculturalists and others who want to mine and um, farm and, and do other things to the land that aren't going to be in the best interest of the other inhabitants of that land. Whereas with pastoralism, most of the pastoralists I know look at life very differently and think of a kinship to that nature. So I'm thinking in particular of the transhuman nomads in, in Mongolia and some of the pastoralists I know in, in Africa. And their framework and their culture is one that lends itself much better to a cohabitation, a, a, a notion of, like Andy said, elephants are, are another form of being that have the same rights as we have if we can say that. Um, in some places in the Western world, it's changing. I know Spain has given rights to, to great apes, which is a remarkable step forward in our relationship to the natural world and bespeaks a cultural shift that's happened in an interesting place because Europe is, is very much an urbanized um, civilization and society where people are largely divorced from nature. Um, I don't know if Spain as much as some of the other cultures because Spain has a lot of open space and a lot of wildlife left relative to much of Europe, especially most of Western Europe. But I'm kind of rambling on, but I guess what I'm saying is, really, if you want to do conservation, you need to, you need to really immerse yourself in the cultures of the people with whom you're working, because hopefully you're working with them, to engender a, a stronger conservation ethic that's going to lead to a better relationship to our planet and a long-term sustainability. And I mean real sustainability, not economic development sustainability, but a sustainable lifestyle in which we're not the dominant critter on the planet anymore, but we're one of many with whom we hold kinship. I mean, that's what I believe. And I believe that in our society, in the Western world, we've lost that. We've really lost it, and we need to find our way back to it quickly in the face of global warming and in the face of the biodiversity crisis. Speaking of insects, um, as just another one more aside, you know, we're talking about this insect apocalypse. I work for a, an invertebrate um, conservation organization right now, and we spend a lot of our time thinking about invertebrates and insects in particular. And I always talk to people about the loss of invertebrates, and most people don't realize it's happened until you bring up a very stark reminder, which is, you know, when you used to drive as kids, we'd go on long road trips and our car windshield would be full of dead insects, dead bugs. We'd have to clean the car every so often of these bugs. We'd have screens for the radiator because they get clogged with bugs and brushes to brush them out. Now you don't have to worry about that. Why is that? Well, it's because we've lost all these insects. And that has a cascading effect, a ripple effect throughout the ecosystem. And the reason we've lost these insects is mostly because of the indiscriminate use of pesticides. And so again, what we're seeing is this kind of prioritization of, of humanity over other life forms, including agriculture. 
But what it's going to mean in the long term is we're going to make this planet uninhabitable because those insects, those invertebrates are the little things that make the world work. And so our culture needs to shift if we want to survive. And um, I'm making a plea. I'm kind of an evangelical in terms of conservation. I'm going to always try to push and bring up again the fact that we need to change as a society. So I'll be bringing up these kind of issues again and again. But culture forms the heart of what we need to do to, to shift. Cultures do change. They shift over time. Um, people who th- suggest otherwise just haven't looked carefully at culture over time. And I think it's, it's really time for our Western culture to shift to better reflect some of the other cultures that exist out there that are more kind of harmonious with nature and animals. That's fantastic. Thinking about change and having a theory of change that encapsulates this relationship between the circularity of culture and institutions and the chicken and the egg and how we can really think rigorously about how we change individuals to then change institutions and institutions to change individuals and the kind of dialectic between those. That's, that's a really difficult problem. That's why I went into global education policy to try to think about how we can change that form you know, of, of that institution to be more conducive to ecological flourishing. Um, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky one, which is why we're having this conversation <laughs> because the interplay between culture and conservation is really, I think, at the heart of that challenge. Um, and so Kahindi, can you unpack that further for us from your perspective? I think you might have a different vantage point on that than Rich. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. I agree with all that Rich uh, says, you know, and uh, I subscribe to his uh, schools of thoughts as well as um, his perspective, you know, on what has happened, what is happening and what might happen uh, in the future. Um, However, I would like to look at it uh, in a slightly different way and contextualize it you know, from uh, an African or Asian perspective, you know, where we are talking about an abundance, you know, of uh, wildlife, you know, or animals, so to speak. Um, Since time immemorial, you know, most Asian, African, I think Eurasian cultures were intricately connected to animals. You know, hunting was part and parcel, you know, of their lifestyle. And uh, they used, you know, a lot of uh, knowledge and skills you know, to know what to harvest and what not to harvest. In actual fact, quite a lot of those practices were guided, you know, by cultural rules, regulations, taboos, norms, and practices. You know, if you come to uh, my continent uh, of Africa, uh, you will find quite a lot of traditional communities that still coexist with uh, an abundance of wildlife are guided by the same um, guidelines or uh, frameworks of coexistence. A very interesting thing in in my country, Kenya, is we always say, and I've had this since childhood and I still hear it today, that over 70% of our wildlife lives outside the wildlife protected areas. And uh, I always even ask students in my class how that is possible or what that statement really means. And everybody goes blank and they forget that there is actually you know, a relevance of culture and conservation, yeah, where we are saying that culture facilitates the survival of a lot of wildlife outside protected areas, you know, where the culture dictates the limits of tolerance. It also dictates on the code of behavior towards nature and certain uh, species of animals. You know, African culture, for example, pastoralists usually have rules on 
where and when to graze and for how long you can actually do it, depending on what the circumstance is. I said earlier, you know, that my elders will take us out and look at the skies and they will tell us whether the rainy season is actually coming or not. And then they will tell us where to move the camels and the goats, depending on where they predict on, on, or when they predict the um, rains will come. You know, and the animals will actually go out there. And we always used to be told that you have to begin by doing some practice, some cultural practice, either burning incense or um, uh, using elephant dung to try and do a blessing ceremony exactly where the livestock will sleep. Because an elephant eats all types of trees and some of those trees are sacred. And when you burn them in incense, then you actually, you know, um, uh, bless your heart. I mean, Katie, to date, marriage in my community will never happen if there is no elephant dung. It doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't matter how much you've invested in putting a wedding party, it won't happen. So you've got to invest in getting elephant dung and bring it. So you can imagine those kind of cultural practices that held communities together. And um, some of my kids, for example, when they're on school holiday and they have to go uh, hard goats, I was so surprised they do exactly the same thing they used to do. You know, we would uh, find where the elephants are, especially the bulls, then drive the goats there because the elephants will do all the hard work of shaking the trees and all the seed pods will come down. And uh, the elephants will tolerate all the goats and the goats will really follow the elephants and eat and eat. And then we had time to play. My kids actually secure time to play by driving the goats to where the elephants are. And then the goats just follow the elephants. The elephants keep dropping the pods and, you know, uh, browsing and they just keep picking the leaves. And all of a sudden, you know, at around three o'clock, I do not know how goats know it's three o'clock. They basically just separate from the elephants and look for the boys, you know, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, when, when, when you kind of like imagine, you know, how these little boys will know where the elephants are, which elephants to put goats in there, and then how to separate the elephants from the goats and take the, you know, goats back home. You know, so, yeah, and, and, and uh, even when they get into young adulthood and they're about to get married, they all know that the wedding ceremony must be done with elephant dance. Now, these are the kind of, you know, um, practices that facilitate that particular coexistence. And I'm just using, you know, the pastoralist communities as an example, but this cuts quite right across, you know, most of the cultures that, that basically coexist with uh, animals out there. Now, the problem of abundance. In most cultures, abundance is not an issue. You know, this animal is always there. In actual fact, extinction is usually not in the lexicon of quite a lot of traditional cultures. Like when you tell people an animal can get extinct, you know, and it's an animal they know, and it's an animal they relate to, and it's an animal they are like, wait a minute, how? You know, and, and, and they begin questioning it. And it's a novelty for them to think that on land, one day the elephant will disappear. They're like, what? You know, my elders always say, where an elephant passes once, it will always pass there, even if it takes 20 years. Now, there are eight major clans in my tribe. Each clan has got a totem animal in there. There are those clans that the totem animal is a baboon, as ugly and as obnoxious as you might think it is. There are those cultures where the totem animal is actually a black mamba. You know, you know, as, you know and when you think of a black mamba, and there is a whole clan whose totemic animal is a black mamba. You know, so you begin to think, how do these animals then become totemic and what is the relationship? 
you know, between these particular animals and these particular people. And these are the kind of intricacies that many conservation planners and thinkers never integrate when they come up with programs. You know, there is very little place for culture in conservation planning. In actual fact, it is always an afterthought. You know, it is always thought of a as a pleasantry or as a nice breaker. We know there are a lot of elephants within this particular tribe. So let us actually go and build them a school so that we can let them live with elephants. Little do we know that they already live with elephants before you even build the school. You know, so when we go as conservationists and tell traditional people, wait a minute, we would like you to preserve all the wild dogs here because the wild dogs are about to get extinct. The elders uh, of that particular community like mine will tell you, how can the wild dogs go extinct? Yet when boys get circumcised to get to, to be warriors, they are called wild dogs. And when there are no wild dogs here, even if they eat our goats and cows, there is, it's actually a bad omen. Now, recently, uh, you are aware we went to Northern Kenya, you know, a place called Garissa, where we went to check on the drought situation of uh, the livestock dying, you know, and there were lots of reports of giraffes dying. And um, when we went there, you know, our main, my main curiosity was on the giraffes, you know, and um, the Somali elders with guns strapped on their backs and with all the fear you can actually think of them, began telling us that they are so worried about the giraffes. And we thought, no, you should be talking about camels and cows. They said, no, the giraffes. So then I let them talk on and say, why are you thinking and talking about the giraffes first? before we talk about uh, the danger, dangers facing the camels and the cows, you know, because of the drought. And they told me it is a taboo and culturally a bad omen for you to drive your camels where there are no giraffes. If anything, if we come up with interventions to alleviate drought for our camels, we have always got to count the giraffes in. I said, what? So I said, so when we basically do these interventions, um, you're telling us that we should actually be thinking of the giraffes before your camels. And to tell you the truth, they said yes. You know, because, you know, uh, God said, if you do not find an animal that is similar to a livestock you've got, then there is something very wrong with that kind of livestock. And then I went and asked them, how about the baboon? There are so many warthogs, you know, and baboons around all these wells. You know, why are you tolerating them? And the elders said, you know, uh, it is against the Somali culture to actually hurt or harm an animal with a very ugly face because God gave it ugliness. And when you are unkind to it, the ugliness will be transferred to your children. You know, and so they, 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 they keep that, you know, distance and they say, please let the warthogs, you know, come and drink, you know, all the water that is spilling around and let the baboons just stay there because you know, God gave them a burden of ugliness, you know, and um, we should always have mercy, you know, on creatures that are already under punishment. We cannot punish them any further because then we will invoke the same punishment. I mean, this is culture, you know, and, and, and these are the kind of things they are doing to coexist. Now, let me now shift gears all the way to Europe and America, you know, and, and there's a, a taboo subject of zoos and aquariums. How does uh, Africa get most of its funding to support conservation. It is through the people visiting zoos and aquariums in America and Europe. Now, as much as uh, contentious as that might, may sound, you find that um, a lot of conservation, especially where populations have actually gone down, 
is supported by zoos. But zoos would never be viable if people do not have a culture of liking animals, going there and wanting to support something extra, especially in its natural habitat. Now, I've met a lot of people who kind of say that, wait a minute, all zoos should be shut down. But I shut down. And then I always ask them, where is the inspiration for the wildlife culture going to come from in the West? You know, if you actually do that. They say no, but all these animals were actually collected and picked from their natural habitats and taken all the way to zoos in America. And I always keep saying that was then. You know, there is very little you can do to actually correct that. These animals that are already in zoos can never be taken back. And in actual fact, there are so many generations down that they would even not uh, remember some of the best survival instincts when they go to the ground. But what are some of the best things they, uh, these particular animals in zoos do? You know, um, they inspire. They inspire a very interesting culture for the Western world to support these creatures wherever they are. And um, Rich can actually confirm that a lot of work that is done right across Africa is funded by zoos. You know, as much as we want to criticize zoos, you know, the, the, the zoo-going culture is actually what has kept conservation alive in most of Africa. You know, and, 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 and that's a fact. So um, um, uh, how do we bring the two in? How do we merge the two? You will realize that a lot of zoos as well uh, come um, um, and support in situ mm -hmm. conservation, you know, and, and, and basically go back with messages to the zoo growing culture in uh, Europe and in the US and say, look, there is a particular population of lions, you know, that are in need of certain interventions and we need to actually support that. And everybody goes to the zoo and they see the lions and they say, mommy, can we invest $1,000? Can we invest $2,000? Can we bequeath, you know, X, Y, Z? And when you come to Africa, you realize that some of those sanctuaries are actually preserved by those expressions of interest of people who've gone to the zoos, as much as we criticize the zoos, in all, you know, the, the, the same monies and resources actually coming through there, you know, basically going all the way, you know, to places like African Asia to actually try and support some of these things going on. So. Um, um, uh, one of uh, my friends, her name is Rose Club, you know, and um, she used to, I think she's, I don't know whether she's still there, um, used to work for um, the London Zoo. You know, um, we had a very interesting chat, you know, uh, in the presence of my former boss, Ian Douglas Hamilton. And Ian had a very simple, straightforward question for Rose. And he asked, how much choice do these animals have? And Rose went, what? So how much choice do you give these particular animals? And that question changed zookeeping behavior right across the world. You know, because that is not something that many zookeepers had actually thought of. You know, choice of animals. Because if we are saying that the animals in zoos represent the actual populations of the ground, then you know, when it comes to welfare, and we are saying animal welfare is a human responsibility, how much choice, you know, are these institutions actually giving these particular animals so that they are actually good representatives of what's actually going on in the ground? Then let's come to my third dimension. At the moment, Kenya has got the highest number of community-based conservancies. You know, if you remember, and you can connect my statement, that over 70% of wildlife is actually found outside wildlife protected areas. It is actually on communal lands. So we have 168 community and private conservancies in Kenya. Now, everybody keeps asking, how do you have such a high number you know, of 
voluntary you know, a conservation area and a community and private ownership? How does that happen? And the answer is very simple. As soon as people realized that they can secure their land, which hosts the uh, you know, large populations of wildlife, and that um, a reality of having large and vast parcels of land uh, teeming with a lot of wildlife, attracting conservation organizations, a lot of communities and private people realize that they can actually expand their contacts and networks, you know, with these particular people, you know, and uh, create employment, come up with education programs, you know, get into conservation enterprises and actually uplift the livelihoods of their own communities. And that's how they voluntarily came out with that. Now, over 60% uh, of these particular conservancies have got tourism on them. So all the people are saying, we never thought we can milk an elephant. You know, we don't eat, eat gazelles, but we are actually now benefiting from people who are coming to see gazelles, you know, and supporting our schools, our hospitals, employing our children, paying for our teachers, giving scholarship to our kids, you know, and basically that whole social upliftment. So uh, when I look at conservation and culture from those three or four dimensions that I've actually brought up, I can only see a mesh and a melting point where there is a win-win situation if there is a balance between cultural perceptions and practices that is directly relevant and directed to wildlife conservation and management. There is no way we can leave culture out, whether it is people who are supporting conservation in the Western world or people who are actually practicing it you know, on the continents of Africa and Asia. And that's my take on where these two integrate and merge. Yeah, I'd like to add one thing too, is that um, I talk about the West, but you know there are cultures in the West, in the United States in particular, that were here before us, um, before us Europeans, that have a great culture um, of respect for nature and the ability to live very well and very appropriately, in my opinion, with the that they're fellow citizens of the planet. And so I want to acknowledge that, you know, what, while the European cultures have taken over North America, largely, the traditional cultures that were here originally were, are great exemplars for us, in my opinion, in terms of where we need to go as a, as a society. I think that's really an important point and one that we often forget, those of us living in North America. Absolutely, Reg. And I think sometimes looking at the North American context, it can feel like such an intractable problem because there isn't this sort of intermingling or this close proximity often between people and wildlife. Um, there's, there's a very you know, clear boundaries that we place around where we think wild things are and where humans are and human activities are. And so it, you know, getting at the base of the dysfunction of this relationship and how we have spatially conceived of it, and I think emotionally also conceived of it, is really difficult. And so, yeah, Rich, I just, I'd love for you to speak a little bit about, you know, you've worked extensively across continents and in places that arguably represent quite different cultural landscapes and, and ways of relating to other animals in the environment. So if you could share with us maybe what parallels or, or similarities you see across these in terms of conservation challenges? Yeah, I, I tend to look at the differences more than the similarities. Yeah. So well, we can start point. there. <laughs> so I think I was also going to ask, what are the important cultural differences that you've observed that you think need to be factored into how we approach the specific challenges in, in each context? But also, I have a feeling some of those challenges 
aren't unique, even though they might manifest in specific ways? I think there are, there are some similarities. And speaking to Candy's point, there's a lot of wildlife that, that persists outside of protected areas in, in the United States as well. And um, a lot of people living with wildlife. Now, some of those cultures aren't respectful of all wildlife, so they might not like large carnivores, for example, but they tend to really um, love, at least they say they do, love and respect animals and want to see wildlife and love seeing wildlife on their properties. Um, so there are the kind of pastoralist agricultural communities in the United States that I've lived with um, and been a part of. I do. I did have some property that I just recently sold a small ranch of you know, 500 hectares or 1,300 acres um, down in southeastern Colorado. So, you know, the the people that, that live there, there's a there's a there's kind of a divide, even in 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 those cultures. And they'll say um, that one of the problems ranchers will say that they have is that you can't get two ranchers to agree on anything. But what they t- tend to agree on is they like seeing animals for the most part, and they like seeing them in a certain number in a certain way. So maybe not the way I would like to see it, maybe not as many animals as I would like to see, but it forms a cultural basis for engendering a kind of a new paradigm on the landscape in which we can work with local communities to promote things like conservation easements, which is something I do. So people putting an easement on their property to protect it and to protect the wildlife therein and thereby show the landowners that they can actually benefit financially from a value they say they espouse, which is this this respect and love for animals. And so, um, whereas theirs is a much more utilitarian approach, I think there is an overlap. They do like seeing the birds. They do like seeing the animals. It's not just for harvest um, or or killing through hunting. It's also through through this kind of um, bird watching that doesn't have a name for them. They just like seeing the animals. And they get very excited when I can explain what all the different things are, um, generally speaking. And so um, I've really found a kinship with a lot of the landowners um, that persist on the land in large chunks of property when I start talking about other cultures and how those cultures especially pastoralist cultures, I'll say in particular, have been able to protect their lifestyles and the wildlife that share that lifestyle with them. So um, there is a basis. It's not as strong as I'd like it to be. It's something that needs to be developed further. It's something that we need to, as a society, um, promote and subsidize to the extent we can. I think easements are a great great way we already do. We already have started to subsidize this relationship with nature that's a more positive one. Um, and I think those, those relationships or those subsidies can go even further. So rather than the, what I call the perverse agricultural subsidies that are out there, these more positive conservation subsidies are what we need to do. And the perverse agricultural subsidies are things like, you know, in the United States, down where I had my property, you can make more money by plowing up your land and never growing anything on it than you can by having a farm or a ranch. And that's because the government will pay you not to grow stuff on that property. So you don't have to expend the time and money in growing the crops. 
you don't have to expend the time and money in putting cows on the land and the government will just pay you. So um, I had a 80 acre, 80 acre parcel, which is about, I don't know, it was about 30 hectares that was once farmed and I was getting paid thousands of dollars every year not to grow anything on that land, even though I told the government I have no intention to grow anything on that land. And in fact, I have a strict easement that prohibits me from growing out anything on that land. They said, well, you still qualify if you want the money. So what that tells a, a landowner is, again, it's this perverse subsidies we have in, agri in the agricultural realm that we need to get rid of that culturally are inhibiting our ability to do good conservation. And the flip side is that more positive one I talked about earlier, the conservation easements, where, wherein you can take an easement out that you won't plow up your land, that you will protect the wildlife, that you won't dump chemicals onto your land, you won't use pesticides and herbicides, and thereby you will get a certain value that's a direct tax credit in Colorado anyway, and I don't know about other states, but in Colorado, you get a direct tax credit, which is basically money. You can trade it like money. Um, and so you can see a, a benefit that means really something positive for your, for your bottom line, as well as what you're saying your culture is. So if you love the outdoors and you love nature and the reason you're a rancher is because you like live out in nature, then here's a way you can do it more easily that and still protect and espouse some of the same values I have. So there are, there are ways. Um, we're developing those ways, I think, as a society. Um, we're moving away from these perverse agricultural subsidies, I think. I hope we do more of that. Um, and we need to also, when we're working internationally, not export the negative aspects of our cultures. And by that, I mean, um, there was a movement, for example, when I first started working in Mongolia right after the end of communism, that um, range ecologists went over to Mongolia and suggested that they privatize the land and put up fences. And because right now Mongolia is largely unfenced. There's, you can basically cross the country without opening a gate on horseback. It's pretty amazing. It's the size of Alaska and it's not fenced. And um, the, Mon the Mongolians protested and they, they, had a, they blockaded the capital city. They said, we don't want this. This is not part of our culture. It's not something, and, and kudos to them. It's not something they wanted. It's not something they should have had. And in fact, they were successful. There are still no fences for the most part across the vast majority of Mongolia. It's changed a little bit along railroad tracks. They have put some fences up. But um, in terms of land ownership, they don't want it privatized. They want it to be land that everyone can use which I think is a much better attitude. Um, it can lead to tragedy of the commons, which is everybody overusing landscapes. But so far in Mongolia, they've avoided that to a large extent. And so um, they do need to deal with increasing livestock numbers, which are gonna eventually be a problem. But their culture dictates that it, the way to address that is not through private land ownership and fencing. And it's not through kind of commercialization of, of wildlife. It's through more community-based, local community-based initiatives, which I think are, are the way to go. And so right now you're getting cooperatives of local ranchers um, or pastoralists that are cropping up um, kind of more or less on their own. So organically, they're just developing. They're, they're realizing they need to do something about increasing livestock numbers and the degradation it's causing. And so they're coming up with their own solutions, which are based in their culture. 
and have a lot to offer us, I think, in the Western world. So we need to be really careful about exporting our cultural ideals to other cultures and other countries. That's what Europe did in North America. And I already alluded to the problem that we have by displacing Native Americans and what was a much better culture for, for wildlife, in my opinion, um, on our land. And so um, we, it would behoove us very well to look to partner with places like Mongolia and, and Kenya and Tanzania, rather than come in and think we have the answers. We don't have the answers. But together, working with Kenyans and, and Mongolians and, and Tanzanians, we can come up with much better solutions than have been promulgated so far. So I think there's gonna be a lot of value and a lot of insight grown from shared culture, shared cultures than there is by exportation of cultures. And um, my hope is that groups like Fulbright, um, Peace Corps, that really work on engendering this, this cross-cultural um, exchange of people and ideas are gonna come to the forefront and help us realize that um, really it's one world um, and nobody has one answer that's better than somebody else's answer. I think, I think we can learn a lot from Mongolians and I bring them over here all the time to try to learn from them, for example. So um, there are some shared opportunities out there. There's a lot of differences and um, there's no one size fits all, I think. It's the main answer that I've come away with in my years of working on um, six continents, uh, mostly in grasslands, is that there are, each culture is going to have to come up with their own method of addressing the conservation challenges that face them, but they can do it. And their culture usually, if you look back far enough, has some method for doing so that's really effective because they have persisted for millennia on these landscapes and they've persisted for millennia on these landscapes with nature and wildlife. There's a reason that they were successful in, in persisting on these landscapes and it, it, it stems with those cultures. So we have a lot to learn in North America. We have a lot to learn in Europe. Um, and I think these other cultures have a lot to teach us. Absolutely. Candy, do you have anything that you want to add? I was maybe just going to say, uh, before we kind of pivot to thinking about this from a more theoretical or policy perspective, that sometimes this potential between cultures can manifest as a, as a tension um, between what can look like competing goods. In my research, you know, I was looking at global education policy and the tensions between the kind of universalism of global education policy and then the specific traditional, often indigenous knowledges and ways of conceptualizing education um, in the context where I was doing my research. And looking at that as, you know, it's so often it can be framed as a conflictual relationship, but actually looking at it as something that is synergistic. And like you said, Rich, can actually lead to really, you know, robust and incredible ways of creating healthy relationships between between these two knowledge systems. As we think about this more abstractly, how do you understand that tension and how we, the, the sort of universalist way we talk about issues like climate change and, and other ecological challenges that are very much planetary in scope, but manifest in, in culturally specific ways. And then the sort of more local traditional solutions that are likely uh, required to solve them. Like, how do, we, how do we walk this line in terms of you know, how we think about this from a policy perspective and how we think about this 
uh, and sort of on the ground community based initiatives to to solve some of these really really large problems. Candy, do you want to take that one? I, yeah, I can start by saying um, the biggest issue or challenge when it comes to looking at these different perspectives are the competing interests. You know, there are so many competing interests. You know that uh, whichever group or whichever um, party has got more financial and material power, you know, their voice will always be heard, you know, whether you like it or not, whether they are right or wrong. You know, and and, and this is exactly what um, has happened, you know, since the turn of uh, the 20th century. You know, look at uh, the establishment of national parks, you know, and uh, uh, wildlife protected areas. You know, they were created mainly to, for example, in Africa, to particularly in Kenya, to basically control uh, spot hunters after the First World War. That's exactly why they were created. So, you know, tourism was actually spot hunting, you know, because I remember someone like Theodore Roosevelt was, you know, a customer, you know, spot hunting customer in our country, you know, same as Elspeth Huxley, you know, as well as uh, the current Queen Elizabeth, you know, they, 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 they were great customers, you know, in my country, you know, when it came to hunting and stuff, you know, so uh, national parks, which is uh, a concept that was borrowed, you know, from the United States, you know, of America, you know, and in 1993, you know, was seen by all these um, uh, colonial bodies as uh, a way of trying to preserve and protect their wildlife populations from the voracious and uh, hunters, sport hunters there. They created national parks. And the locals were asking, why are you creating an area that basically has never really quite existed? You know, and they said, you know, these particular areas belong, you know, to the crown or to the colony. And it's to protect wildlife. And uh, the locals were asking, protecting them from who? You know, and, um, uh, uh, and for who? You know, and that's how most of the governments in Africa came up with the notion that all wildlife belongs to governments. Except in Southern Africa now, in East Africa, especially in Kenya and Uganda, I think, all wildlife still belongs to government. And that is actually something that uh, was spilled over from the colonial time. So going back to my earlier statement by saying there is a need to understand the conflicting interests here, you know, and how we can be able to rise above the denial, you know, that these particular conflict interests cause more harm to cultures and conservation than initially intended, you know, and that needs to be, that needs to be addressed. Number two, when you look at conservation education and conservation planning, most of the models are from the Western world, you know, and when you bring them over here, then you realize that there is very little engagement of the local communities and local people where they bring their side of the story there, simply because they are considered they do not have the resources to actually fund, you know, the plans that are actually being made. And I always keep repeating and saying, the biggest donor to conservation in these landscapes in Africa and Asia are the indigenous people. It is their land, it is their goodwill, and above all, it is their interest. You know, so if you are looking for a donor and you want to come up with the biggest donor, you know, and supporter for any plan you have on a natural resource 
anywhere on these particular landscapes, you cannot be able to put conservation organizations and mediating structures above the local people and their interests. And it's until we are able to solve that, then we might be able to solve the puzzle as to how to come up with a balanced outcome here. You know, and, and, and that kind of engagement requires rules. We've been talking about relationships here between culture and conservation, but what are the rules? What are the rules of engagement? Who makes those particular rules? What are the guidelines? To whose benefit are those guidelines? And those kind of things, you know, should actually be constantly reviewed, criticized and evaluated in order to try and check what the outputs versus the outcomes are, you know, in order to come up with the best fit system. When, again, it comes to conservation interest, sometimes we say we want populations to increase or we want populations to remain stable. But you realize that the population of the wildlife you need is a problematic animal to the people that are on the land. You know, so how do you actually get a buy-in, for example, from Maasai's who basically look at lions as pests, you know, on, uh, on their livestock and then try to convince them that, wait a minute, we need the population of lions to increase. They will ask you, are you really serious? You know, that you really want that the population of lions to increase. It sounds acceptable and great and, you know, but how about the feeling of that particular local person? What is it that they are not saying? You know, because all we read from them is that this is a pest animal. But there's something else they are not saying. They are saying, what they are not saying is, nobody's asking us. Everybody is coming up with an action plan, but nobody's really asking us. You know, because um, uh, there's this cliche, you know, that in order for Maasai's and people who coexist with lions to prove their bravery, then they've got to kill a lion. And it is actually the biggest form of crap I've ever had. You know, because um, Maasai's have got rules on which lions they kill. They never kill females and they never kill young. They will always go for the problematic uh, male lion. If a female lion is problematic and it is lactating, it is a taboo to actually kill. So how then do we generalize and say, we are not going to ask you about lions because for you to prove bravery, you've got to kill a lion, you know, in order, you know, uh, for you to basically be seen as someone in community. So Katie, one of the things um, that uh, we must constantly learn to do is to listen and to actually fit those uh, paradigms and notions, merge them in order to come up with the best solution. And then not cast those in stone, we must be able to come up with a way of monitoring and evaluating the impact on the environment, the impact on the society, the impact on the economy, but above all, the impact on culture. You know, because when you have two merging cultures talking about the same thing, then you cannot afford to have one culture actually overriding or overpowering the other one. And that is an ideal situation which doesn't usually happen in the world. But, you know, um, quite a lot of organizations are learning how to basically come up with a framework that fits all that in. And that's the challenge, you know, we are talking about here. Exactly. That's the heart of the challenge. Rich, I'm going to let you chime in here. Yeah. Um... I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Mongolia a little bit more because Mongolia has developed a, a different model for protected areas um, in which the local people are now the ones promoting the creation of more protected areas than anyone else. So they're in direct conflict with natural resource extracting industries in Mongolia, which 
control the capital largely because they control the money, as Katie alluded to, they had the power. But the local people, because they were part and parcel to helping create the laws that govern how protected areas are managed, are very much in support and are the ones driving the creation of new protected areas in Mongolia today. So it's a very different scenario than, for example, the United States, where the local people often fight it. And I don't know, I, I can't speak to Kenya, but in, in Botswana, it's really variable. Some of the people, um, I know Botswana much better. Um, a lot of local people really like the protected areas because they bring in tourist dollars and that money goes back to their communities, which is great. In Mongolia, there's very little in the way of tourism dollars that come in. What the protected areas do do is they create a, a management situation in which resource extraction is banned and livestock management is managed cooperatively with the local people. And with a lot of the protected areas, they're actually managed by the local people. So you have local rangers by default and by law. You have local governments that are in charge. And so they set up a protected area that fits very well with their culture. So I think there are models out there that we can, we can look to, is what I was saying earlier, what I was alluding to earlier, that work better than the models that, that we have. And again, it's because of that culture, uh, that underlying culture, that allows this to happen in Mongolia, a place like Mongolia, where they help draft the laws and those laws reflect their cultural identity as a, as a society and the people. And these, these transhuman um, pastoralists who don't live in permanent structures at all, they move around with their homes, yurts or gares as they call them, and have relatively minor impact on them. So I wanted to bring that up as a, as a counterpoint to uh, what happens in most of the world, which is local people often fight protected area development and talk about an area where local people are promoting and actually proposing new protected areas every single day. It's a great counterbalance to what we see elsewhere. Yeah, and I think that's a really good example, Rich, of kind of what Kahindi was alluding to, of where these different ways of thinking about conservation merge in a way that the power interest or the power imbalance doesn't necessarily dictate all the tenets of that arrangement. And I'm just thinking, what do you see as the primary obstacles, Kahindi, between, you know, oftentimes there's there's a lot of spectacle around conservation initiatives. There's a lot of spectacle about how these ideas are talked about on a kind of universal stage by people from lots of different countries as global initiatives that ultimately sound great as abstract kind of ethereal priorities, but then often don't translate in the way that we've been talking about to this important merging of these priorities with local specific traditions and cultures and customs. So how do we overcome that? How do we overcome the kind of spectacle tendency of a lot of conservation and you know, climate change mitigation work globally to actually you know, shift the focus to those initiatives and those programs that are doing real good on the ground? Like, for example, what Retreating is engaged in in Mongolia and Botswana and what you've been working on in northern Kenya. Uh, to to uh, give you a straight answer, uh, there is actually a lot of uh, ignorance and arrogance, you know, on the part of um, conservation organizations when it comes to engaging local people. You know, a lot of them basically design programs that fit their mandates, not the interests, you know, of who they meet on the ground. So 
that kind of um, arrogance, you know, in itself to expand donor funding, you know, and um, actually basically just meet the strategic, you know, objectives of an organization rather than come up with a way of monitoring exactly what the impact of what they've done is on the ground. You know, even when you look at a lot of M&E programs, they look at the, uh, the impact, you know, by the implementer. They actually do not look at the impact on the ground, you know, from the recipient's point of view. So uh, you realize that that kind of one-sided way of looking at things from the uh, lens of the mediating organization. And um, depending on how much wealth and resources a mediating organization has, it can actually influence a regional or even a national policy. Like, for example, for a long time, our wildlife management policy was dictated by the likes of WWF, you know, World Wildlife Fund for Nature and African Wildlife Foundation and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, um, as well as lots of others. You know, and this in itself basically um, shaped our policy to respond, you know, to the interests of those kind of structures, but again, ignoring, you know, exactly what was happening on the ground. And that has changed, you know, a lot. And uh, the reason why it has changed is because you have a lot more funders that are demanding for social equity. You know, they are saying we need to see a lot and actual engagement of people on the ground. We do not even just want to see engagement only. We want to see active participation. You know, we want uh, every single program to have, you know, um, a checklist of social justice. You know, whether you're dealing with elephants, lions, leopards, or even antelopes. You know, where are the people? Why are the people not getting involved? What does it mean for them? How much of their opinion is actually here? We are seeing that actually coming up. So uh, although I say there's a lot of uh, ignorance, you know, uh, that is coupled with arrogance, you know, that is actually being, you know, phased out, you know, especially when it realizes, you know, when there's a big realization, you know, that, uh, for example, uh, a lot of uh, programs and activities are gender biased. You know, when you talk about nature and you leave women out or you leave the youth out, you know, I mean, how do you get then a holistic, you know, engagement of that same community? if you're not actively seeking them out, you know, and, and we are seeing that actually changing slowly by slowly, especially with the conservancies that are actually coming up and also the organizations and associations actually being brought in there. That is actually one side. Another big challenge we have is the apathy of government policy. You know, uh, when you look at uh, most government policies, you will find a problem with land use planning, for example. Most of the areas do not have uh, master land use plans. You know, when I was advocating against the construction of um, the uh, railway, the standard gauge railway across Nairobi National Park, uh, several prominent businessmen uh, went to the news and said that Nairobi National Park is a big waste of space that should be able to create expansion of Nairobi City, despite the fact that Nairobi National Park is the only uh, wildlife safari area in a metropolis anywhere in the world. I mean, that to them did mean anything. You know, and, and these are the guys who make decisions right at the government level. You know, and it's important to address, you know, government policy, you know, critically, you know, and do a proper stakeholder analysis whenever we are talking about conservation, especially in the context of engaging culture. Third, there is actually um, a lack of public awareness, 
you know, on uh, uh, the most prevailing issues. So when you talk about climate change, to someone who is actually employed in a supermarket, they only see, you know, money at the end of the month as a salary. So how do we bring as shop attendants to understand what the vagaries of climate change are? What are the indicators of climate change, you know, and uh, uh, fragile ecosystems and a broken, you know, ecological process to a shopkeeper or a shop attendant? What are the indicators? What should we say? Should we say lions are going? According to the shop attendant, that is none of their business because, you know, I mean, they just get a salary at the end of the month. So what do lions have to do with that? You know, so uh, um, um, we need to innovate ways of increasing uh, a reasonable and constructive public awareness that brings the realities of what a humankind is actually doing out there and the impacts and the effects of that to an ordinary person in order for us to elicite and incite and even um, encourage you know, participation of the public in some of these ideas we are actually talking out there. So in my opinion, those are the three uh, uh, areas of challenges that uh, basically face um, the, the possible, possible um, uh, positive outcome uh, of interacting culture and conservation. Yeah, I'd like to add that conservation imperialism doesn't work. So another reason people are moving away from it is it's just not effective. And people are finally realizing that just like economic imperialism didn't work because it didn't address local people and neither does conservation um, imperialism work because it doesn't address local people. And so hopefully we're, we're going to move beyond that. Um, I'm 100% behind what Candy said. Yeah, very succinctly put, Candy. And though the problems of ignorance and arrogance are unlikely to go away, it's good to know that there is progress being made in some of the funding models for these things, just driven solely on the fact that, like Rich Reading said, that conservation imperialism doesn't work. It's not effective. It doesn't have the outcomes that the types of initiatives like you've described today do. So um, I feel like I could speak to you both for another hour uh, and still not exhaust all the questions that I would like to ask and the topics that we'd like to cover. But um, any kind of final remarks about the importance of this relationship between conservation and culture and, and what you hope people will take away from this conversation? Yeah. One of my mantras, I have several mantras, and I'll, I'll bring up a couple of them um, at the risk of being pedantic. But one of them is that we need interdisciplinary approaches to conservation and single disciplinary approaches and even multidisciplinary approaches or approaches of multiple disciplines working in isolation don't work. We need that synergy between, between interdisciplinary work. So I was fortunate enough to have mentors early in my career that encouraged me to engage in studies that really looked at both the human dimension side and the ecological side of wildlife conservation. And so I'm biased, of course, as we all are, but my bias is such that I see every day that when we don't work in partnership with multiple disciplines and we don't integrate those multiple disciplines into an interdisciplinary approach, we fail. And we fail because we're not addressing the culture largely is the reason. We can also address the culture and not really speak to the conservation of biodiversity, in which case we fail as well. So we can address either in isolation or we can address them all together at the same time. And working at the same time works better. Another one of my mantras reflects what Candy said is that we have to empower women. 
Um, women tend to have a long-term rationality. Men in developing world tend to have a shorter-term rationality. I got to feed my family tomorrow. I got to make money tomorrow. Women tend to look and say, what, am I, what kind of world are my kids growing up with? Um, what kind of world am I leaving to my kids? It's not to say there's not overlap in those, in those attitudes, but that's generally what you see. And so to the extent we can empower women to make reproductive choices that are smart, make environmental choices that are smart, is the extent to which we're going to see real advances, I think, in conservation in this world. So a couple of my mantras um, that, I, that I talk to anybody who will listen to about are those two. I also think that our that cultures are malleable. And um, we've seen that. When people ask me otherwise, I say, well, um, you know, we can respect cultures to the extent that they respect the natural world. Um, I always point to headhunting, which is a cultural practice. And I, I think as anathema to most people in the world today, and we should, we should wish it go away. So cultures can change, they need to change. And if we want a planet that's habitable, we need to change them. Of course, everybody, that's what the world's about, right? We're all about trying to, we espouse certain values. We think those values are the right values. That's why we espouse them. And we try to proselytize those values on other people. We try to impose, if you will, our values on other people. It's really good to be, use a little humility, as Kindi is suggesting, and say to ourselves, maybe my values aren't the right values. Maybe I need to listen to other people and see what they have to say. Avoid that arrogance that says, I am right. I know I'm right. And be willing to change your values and to listen to others, to espouse a, a more humility. Um, what's the right word I'm looking for? I don't know what I'm looking for. Humility-based. <laughs> humility-based <laughs> approach to, to um, how, we, how we see the world and other people in that world. So those are kind of my three main points I wanted to leave you with. Well, well put. I will jot those, those down and try to incorporate them into my mantras also. Kahindi, what about you? Yeah, I strongly believe in uh, adaptive management, you know, where we <clears throat> adapt <clears throat> uh, according to the situations and uh, we innovate on the go as long as uh, we can be able to meet our conservation goals. You know, so if something doesn't work, you know, throw it out. If something works, just get it going. If uh, something is disrespectful, you know, just leave it. If something is uh, um, um, res uh, respectful and gains a lot of it, then let's do it. You know, so uh, if we uh, become adaptive in the way we look at things, in how we do things, and in the ways we reason about things, you know, then you realize that uh, we will be able to accommodate as many points of views as possible and also absorb as much uh, of the lessons out there as possible. So not necessarily isolate or align ourselves to a particular school of thought. I think being adaptive basically helps, you know, in uh, looking at all angles and, as I said earlier, getting a best fit. So that's one of the uh, things I strongly believe, you know, uh, is a prerequisite in having, you know, a synergy between culture and conservation. Then the next one is um, that we must find every way possible to have a conservation discourse in as many disciplines as possible. You know, so if we are talking about politics, uh, economics, uh, sociology, you know, any uh, aspect that uh, concerns our society, natural resource conservation must 
have a discourse in there somehow. Because every single thing we do politically, technologically, even legislatively, actually has an effect on natural resources, particularly wildlife, you know, and their habitats. My other um, uh, strong belief is small is beautiful. If we can begin looking at small spaces right outside our yard, you know, and keep up our interest and develop our cultures around what we are seeing, you know, near us and in our neighborhoods and in the river down below and in the nearby mountain, that would resonate with quite a lot of cultures in the world. So these whole mentality of it has to be large, big, expansive in order for it to make sense and a big impact, we must throw that out of the window. You know, we should be looking at the totality of small protected uh, mindsets, you know, when it comes to nature, conservation, as well as environmental protection, you know, and then extrapolate that as to how large it is. Every single person says, you know, let's talk about national parks and large conservation areas. But do you know there are interesting bush babies and green mambas and a lot of hyraxes and very interesting squirrels to actually watch and inspire you, you know, in a way that you actually appreciate the big game and the big large populations out there. Because if you cannot see the value of uh, that small creature next to you, then why are you so curious about what you can't see underwater? You know, and you really then don't care, you know, about what goes on or what doesn't go on. So, you know, uh, small is beautiful is a very interesting mentality that we should um, 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 uh, keep encouraging, you know, and uh, making people see that you do not have to be an expert, but you can always see those small little birds and small little rocks and small little lizards. They mean a lot, you know, because if we are aware of that, then that's great. Then the fourth one is that we must be able to inculcate the culture of respect and you know, uh, in emotional intelligence when it comes to how other people feel about you know, wildlife and natural resources. These are age old feelings. You know, like for example, wherever we hear people are shooting an elephant for uh, an income, most of us actually cringe and then you know, say that is actually horrible. But would you say that to the face of the person that is involved in that, for example, under the campfire, you know, program in Zimbabwe, you know, where they see, you know, that particular industry being part and parcel, you know, of uh, pro protecting and preserving their natural resources out there. You know, I mean, there is no way we can keep imposing. And I like the word rich used, conservation imperialism. We cannot keep imposing some of these things you know, on people, you know, so I think it's important to actually listen and then go back to my first point of adapt and then look at how you can have a discourse on it and then how small can you accommodate of, you know, exactly what's going on. So those are my four very strong beliefs, you know, that um, uh, uh, invigorate my values when it comes to understanding culture and conservation. Oh, that was really beautifully put, Candy. Thank you for sharing that with us. And and I guess with that, I'll just say thank you so much to both of you, to Kahindi and Rich for joining us today and just for all of your insight, intellect, and convictions that you're bringing to these issues uh, and how you, how you show up in the world. 
So if you found this conversation interesting and you'd like to learn more about or support our work at NRUSA, you can visit anawusa.org. Thanks so much for listening.